Hi, this is your host, Dale Josie, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Aging with Grace 55 Plus, designed for anyone who wants to enjoy the journey of a lifetime after age 55. This podcast series is made possible by AARP Kentucky, DPL Financial Partners, and Today's Transitions Magazine. For more information, visit todaystransitions.com to read articles that could help you navigate your own transitions. Past episodes of Aging with Grace 55 Plus can also be enjoyed on my website, awg55.com, Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Given recent bad news of a bank collapse, David Lau from DPL Financial Partners returns to discuss alternative strategies for retirement planning. Tech writer Vanessa Hutchinson shares how seniors can embrace technology. Delightful sisters JJ and Natalie from their podcast series, Confessions of a Reluctant Caregiver, discuss the complex realities of role reversal in providing care for their mom who has early onset Parkinson's disease. Today's episode concludes with a list of famous people who, despite criticism to the contrary, accomplished and achieved their dreams and notoriety. That said, let's get after it. Meaning, welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Aging with Greats, 55+. plus. Today's episode opens with some truly bizarre trivia. Then we offer some tips on being mindful about being in the moment. First is zany. So here it goes with some silly, long-forgotten laws that are still on the books. Such as, for example, in Glendale, Arizona, with a shout-out to my buddy Robert, who lives in Arizona, in Glendale, in Glendale, Arizona, it is illegal to drive a car in reverse. So virtually everyone in the mall parking lot is breaking the law, right? You go past the parking spot, oh, wait a minute, Get it in reverse. There. Pull it in there. Can't do that. That's illegal in Glendale, Arizona. In San Francisco, California, it is illegal to wipe your car with used underwear. That's on the books. Obscure, but it's on the books, right? That you can't wipe your car with used underwear. So I guess it begs the question, is it okay to use clean underwear to, to wipe your car down? I don't know. Okay, number, uh, let's see, let's go to New Orleans, Louisiana. Did you know and look, New Orleans, Louisiana, it's against the law to gargle in the public, in public. So I guess, why would you be gargling in public, right? You're walking down the sidewalk. I guess people don't like that in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. In Boston, Massachusetts, it's illegal to take a bath unless one has been ordered by a physician to do so. Glad they forgot about that one because that would be a pretty stinky proposition there in Boston, which is a fine city, as those of you who live there or visit there have found out as I have. In Fargo, North Dakota, it's illegal to lie down and fall asleep with your shoes on. Don't do that in Fargo, North Dakota. In Marion, Oregon, ministers are forbidden from eating garlic or onions before delivering a sermon. I guess that'd be kind of rough on the front row, right? If you if the preacher was eating garlic or onions before delivering a sermon. And folks, people actually did these laws. These are actual laws on the books from these areas, right? So I guess some offended parishioner said, you know what? 
That preacher up there Sunday morning, he, he, he obviously ate garlic and onions. I can't stand this. I can't come back. Well, I'll tell you what, Pilgrim will pass a law so you can come back next Sunday forbidding preachers from eating garlic or onions before delivering a sermon in the fine county town of Marion, Oregon. And then going to our end of zany laws that are still active on the books, at restaurants in Memphis, Tennessee, all pie must be eaten on the premises because it's illegal to take unfinished pie home. Can you imagine that? So all pie for folks down there in Memphis, Tennessee, make sure you eat at the restaurant because they are breaking the law if you take the uneaten pie home. And then finally, in Nicholas County, West Virginia, no clergy member may tell jokes or humorous stories from the pulpit during church services. Preacher, you're up there to preach. Don't be telling jokes or humorous stories. This is church. That's actually a law on the books in Nicholas County, West Virginia. So those, that's kind of the zany stuff, right? And folks, if you know something zany or unusual about your town, feel free to send it to me, dale at awg55.com. And so I promised you that we would go from the zany, and now we're going to settle down into the profundity of being mindful. Because I submit that in these days of turbulence and, and troubling times, being mindful is so critical. Being mindful to who made us, the spirit that sent us, right? How we interact with others. And so I want to end with this thought of mindfulness from Anna Barnes. Anna Barnes writes, notice what distracts you. And she says, um, we each have unique tendencies or thoughts that pull us away from the present moment. Start paying attention to your thoughts and jot down the types of thoughts that distract you the most often. For example, do you have a tendency to dwell on the past or the future? Are you consumed with thoughts of guilt, fear, regret, or worry? Do you ruminate on achieving perfection or success, wealth, and recognition? And you know something, just to take a side note from Anna Barnes, something that I have purged from my own vocabulary, something I've pushed out of my own psychology of awareness, if you will, is words such as should have, could have. Why didn't you? All of those things tend to like, um, it, it's almost like all day long. If, if you let them go, it, they, they bring nothing but negativity, right? Because if you tell yourself, why didn't I? Or I should have, or I didn't go, why did I not do that? That all implies things that you should have done, which would give you a better present, right? So you can't do anything about the past. So don't beat yourself up over what have, should have, or could have because that only torments you in the present. The present is about now. This is the first day of the rest of your life. This is the first day of the rest of your life. So get rid of would have, should have, could have, and let's start being more positive and embrace the moment. So back to Anna Barnes and how to be mindful. She concludes, writing down those tendencies, those things that you that uh that that um that you're thinking about that you ruminate over or things that distract you rather write down those tendencies because if you write them down you can become more mindful about what's going on in your head when you stray from the present moment write down those things that distract you write down those things that pull you away so that when that happens again you can be aware of those things that, that help pull you away from the present moment this insight can lead you to, be, to being more mindful by jotting down those things that distract us. 
and let's focus on on the moment. Today is the first day of the rest of your life without any would-haves, could-haves, or should-haves. Let's go forward and enjoy this day, which is the first day of the rest of our lives. David Lau was the founder and chief executive officer of DPL Financial Partners, which is a privately held financial services firm that specializes in development and distribution of low-cost, commission-free insurance, and annuity products. Since going to market in 2018, DPL has worked with 20 leading insurance carriers to bring a range of value-driven, no-load products to its turnkey insurance management platform for advisors and has built an advisor base of more than 10,000 advisors for more than 3,500 retirement investment advisement firms. David is no stranger to aging with race 55 plus, and not only he's not a stranger to us, but he's also not a stranger to financial journalists. His work has received coverage in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Barron, CNBC, Wealth Management, and other financial media, where he provides insights on industry products, players, trends, and best practices. And to full disclosure, DPL Financial is one of the sponsors of Aging with Grace 55 Plus, which I truly appreciate. David, welcome back to Aging with Grace 55 Plus. How are you? I'm terrific, Dale. Good to see you again. Good Good to see see you. you. Thank you very much. Good to see you too again. And I thought what we would do today in this episode is uh, talk a little bit about banking, right? Uh, I think that's kind of top of mind of a lot of people. Specifically, uh, we've been reading about the headlines of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, it was public knowledge that panic customers withdrew what uh, looks like about $42 billion from the bank on March 9th on concerns that uninsured deposits were at risk. So what do you think that recent news with Silicon Valley Bank will have on retirement planning? It's it's worrisome, frankly. I mean, I'll, I'll try to explain this in, in you know ways that you know everyday people can understand. Uh, but the challenge that banks have in this environment is that interest rates have been rising at an unprecedented speed. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the last eleven months. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates nine times. Wow. Yeah, which is unprecedented. And doing it at, you know, half a percent, 25, you know, 25 uh, basis points or, you know, 0.25%, and, you know, each time. And they're doing that to try to get inflation under control. Okay. Right. So you raise interest rates to try to control inflation. And really, you know, what economists look look at is trying to get interest rates higher than the inflation rate before inflation will start coming down. And we've got this big inflation because, you know, in response to, you know, COVID relief, we printed so much money and put so much money in the economy, you know, people still have money to spend, right? So they're spending and prices are going up um, and it's been this challenge. So for banks, the issue is that their assets, meaning the stuff they make money on, I mean, people think about it as being their deposits, but their assets are mortgages mm. and and bonds, right? Okay. That's what they make money from, right? Because okay. that's where you know people are paying them interest. Deposits, checking accounts, savings accounts, you know, money market CDs, those are liabilities for a bank because they have to pay you know the client interest rates on those. So the so the issue that banks have is they've got these mortgages you know, in their on their assets on their balance sheets 
which are really long duration, 30 years, right? Yes, right. 30 years, and they're at really low interest rates. Now, on the deposit side, on their liability side, interest rates have been going up so much. You know, competitive interest rates are now, you know, four or five percent on a one-year product. Right. That's a that's above where the their assets are. Right. The mortgages are, you know, at two and a half, three percent, you know, that right. you know, people are paying. Everybody refinanced, bought new houses at the supremely right. low interest rates we have. Right. right. And now in order to be competitive on the deposit side, people are moving their money, you know, out of banks into other more competitive yields. Um, and and that's an issue for banks. They can't afford, mm-hmm. you know, to lose their deposits. So what it's called is like mismatched duration. Mismatched duration. Yes, duration being length, right? They've got 30-year assets at really low interest rates. Mm-hmm. Then they've got short-term assets, you know, that you know, on on you know, their deposit side, which, you know, can, you know, have been at low interest rates, but to be competitive today, they've got to be at higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. So they're at real risk of those deposit dollars, you know, moving elsewhere. Wow. And you know, what's interesting about that, when you talk about uh, the, the half percent to 2.5%, David, it's, it's almost like uh, death by a thousand cuts, right? Because as a consumer, I keep hearing this, right? It's a half percent, it's 2.5%. It's like, where are we going with this? You know, and, and so as a consumer, that gets that kind of you get to be tone deaf. Do you not hearing all of this? Yeah, and it, and it's and it's just happened with such frequency. And so yeah. the issue for the issue for banks in normal environments, those rates don't go up very often. They don't and they don't go up as as you know as much or as frequently as we've been seeing. So normally, their you know their assets and their liabilities, their loans and their their bonds are you know pretty well matched to the deposit side because you, know, you don't have rates rising so fast normally right so right. that's that's why this environment has you know created you know issues you know issues for banks I mean the the good news of course for you know consumers you know with banking is FDIC insurance right so mm-hmm. you know you should understand what FDIC insurance is and what it isn't um, and you know FDIC insurance covers a depositor up to $250,000 per bank, not per account. So you have okay. to you know understand that if you've got you know two accounts with $250,000 the same bank, only really one of those is covered. So okay. uh, you know looking to spread your you know spread your risk across institutions um, you know is something you know a lot of people have been doing in this environment. We know it's interesting about that forty-two billion dollar uh, situation with Silicon Valley Bank that with that run on the bank, if we all will, on March 9th. I was reading in Forbes where it said that if the if the FDIC had not stepped in, I'm sorry, if the Federal Reserve had not stepped in, that they would have lost SVB Bank would have lost a hundred billion dollars in cash the next day. Yeah, and so that's why they ended up shuttering the bank because that's a hundred forty-two billion dollar loss, which I think they said represents a staggering eighty-one point eighty-one percent of SVB's uh, one hundred seventy-five billion dollar deposits as of year end, twenty twenty-two. Yeah, so to to try again to make it in a way that people can understand. So the issue for the bank when they start having a run like that is they need to sell some of their assets, okay. the mortgages or the bonds or or whatever in order to you know have the cash to give back to customers right so if they have really low interest rate mortgages and bonds and they have to now sell them so mm-hmm. say you have a, a bond that 
that is yielding 2%. You're earning 2% on it. Mm-hmm. And now that same bond is selling, you know, for, you know, it's 4%. So if you want to go sell that, why is somebody going to buy a 2% bond from mm-hmm. you when they can get a, a new one for 4%? Right, right. Right. So you're, so you're going to take a loss on that bond. And that's where, you know, the, when the run starts happening on the bank, the bank has to sell those assets. They've got to do it at a loss. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what crushed, you know, Silicon Valley bank and signature bank and it, you know, and that's why there's, you know, some, you know, worry about, you know, many other banks at this point. Is that part of the panic? And I'm trying to figure out what, what causes the panic is, is the psychological thing, David, like, like, I mean, people just freak out. Is that, ba- can we say it's as basic as that and causing a panic Did the media contribute to the social media contribute to it? What do you think? That's, I mean, that's certainly the way it seems, right? So the, you know, uh, you know, word starts spreading. Oh, the bank's having trouble, um, and then people want to, you know, want to get their money out of the bank, and then it just makes it worse. And so, you know, media, social media can certainly fuel that. Um, and I think you've seen it, you know, with a couple, you know, a couple of other banks, you know, First Republic, another, and Silicon Valley Bank. Just so people understand, also was the 16th largest bank in the country. Wow. So this wasn't some small mom and pop shop. This was, you know, this was a large bank. Um, you know, other large banks like, you know, First Republic have been, you know, having, you know, similar issues. A bunch of, you know, Wall Street banks came in to back them to support them and and keep them propped up. Wow. Um, but eh, but yeah, the you know, to the question, yeah, the the frenzy, you know, around social media, which is why like a lot of banks, you know, even here in Louisville, you've had like local community leaders come out and say, hey, everything's okay, right? Yeah. Because they really don't want people panicking because if, you know, the money starts moving, that's what creates problems. That's exactly right. Well said. So you talked about the money moving, that creates problems. Do you think alternative strategies will find new growth in light of these events? Yes or no? Oh, yeah, definitely. So you've seen... You know, and I know you know we're going to talk about this a little later, but you know, uh, in the insurance side, um, MIGAs, multi-year guaranteed annuities, they're fixed annuities. They're they they look like CDs. You know, they're like for a duration, meaning you buy them for three years or four years or whatever, and they pay you an interest rate, much like a CD. They're not FDIC insured. You know, like a bank, they're backed by the insurance carrier. You know, those have you know had in, you know massive popularity. Yeah, records record sales levels, you know, of of MIGAs you know, over the past year, and the number one seller of them, super interesting, is banks. Really? Right? Yes. So, so the banks were the largest sellers of annuities uh, in you know twenty twenty two, and now it's kind of you know coming to light as why why is that? Well, they. They want to sell these products because they can't afford to offer interest rates in their own products that are competitive. So they want to, you know, so they want to retain client relationships. They want to, you know, have the the client dollars. They've been offering those similar MIGA like products um, in, in order to you know, maintain those client relationships. I like your tease. David Lau just, just gave you guys a tease for our next segment, which is going to talk more about multi year guaranteed annuities, which is MIGAs. And I hope you're enjoying this interview with David as much as I am. David Lau is the founder and chief executive officer of DPL Financial Partners, a privately held financial services firm that specializes in the development and distribution of low-cost, commission-free insurance, 
and annuity products. David, as we go to our uh, final two questions, the first one is, uh, uh, in wrapping up this segment of Aging with Race 55 Plus, you were recently mentioned in, in the New York Times. What advice did you give readers? Oh, yeah. So we were talking in the New York Times, they, you know, they feature, you know, an article on annuities and, you know, how to use annuities, you know, for retirement plans. And, and we were featured, you know, TPL uh, in there because we're doing new things. We're lowering costs, we're driving out commissions uh, and creating better products for consumers. And so they were highlighting, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, all annuities aren't what, if you've heard bad things about annuities, that's not necessarily true. And there are, you know, and new firms out there doing really good things for consumers. And we, we were, you know, prominently highlighted there, which was, which was terrific. Uh, and the thing, you know, that we highlight is you know, that annuities can really do for consumers is bring certainty into retirement. Okay. And with everything going on between, you know, market volatility, now banks in question, you know, annuities can bring certainty because they provide guarantees. You know, whether it's that interest rate guarantee we're talking about with the MIGA or, you know, or a guaranteed income, uh, you know, for life, you know, f during your retirement, um, you know, which, you know, is kind of like a personal pension. Your annuity can act kind of like the personal pension and give you a monthly income. Um, those kind of products, you know, annuities have, again, record sales, you know, last year, um, you know, more than $350 billion, you know, of annuities wow. purchased by consumers last year. Um, and, you know, because, you know, they can bring certainty and give clients, you know, confidence in their retirement because they know they've got a reliable, you know, form of income, you know, a reliable interest rate, whatever it may be, you know, that they're, and that they're purchasing with that annuity. And, you know, something that's refreshing, uh, you said, which is kind of, uh, 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 I don't want to call it oxymoron, but it doesn't quite fit in the financial world. When you said we're doing new things, and that to me is something that financial firms don't do, is new right. things, right? Yes. So yes. how do you square that with DPL financial partners in a very staid financial uh, environment or industry? Yeah, well, in some way, in some ways, we're doing new things, and in other ways, you, you could just look at it as we're improving old things. So, you know, an annuity is a great product structure. It's a really good product. Like I said, it can provide guaranteed income, it can provide downside protection. You know, it brings insurance to a portfolio in a retirement, and that's a really good structure and a really good thing for consumers. And the problem with annuities has always been that they're driven by commissions, meaning the person who sells it to you is getting a nice commission. You don't know whether the product they're giving you is the best one for them or the best one for you. Right. So what we're doing is taking that product, which is, you know, again, a terrific structure. We're getting rid of the commission so that there's no conflicts of interest, which also lowers the costs you know, for consumers and allows them to get these valuable products, you know, in a way that, you know, that mirrors today's financial services world, you know, where low costs and transparency and commissions have all really been going away. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's new for insurance. It's not new for financial services. And, you know, most importantly, it's really good for consumers. We're going to pick it up there next month and for our listeners. I trust you've enjoyed uh, David Lau in my interview with him. He's the founder and chief executive officer of DPL Financial 
partners, a privately held financial services where more information can be found by visiting their website, dplfp.com. David, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to uh, us continuing this conversation on the next month's, on the next edition of Aging with Grace 55 Plus. Have a great day, David, and thank you. Thanks, Dale. Great talking with you. Our next guest on this episode of Aging with Grace 55 Plus is Vanessa Hutchinson. She's a writer for Today's Transitions magazine, and she does a standing column on technology and I think other things as well, books and reading and movies, etc. But I think today we're only going to focus on technology for seniors. So without further delay, Vanessa, how are you? And welcome to Aging with Grace 55 Plus. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Well, very good. Well, it's good to have you here because one of the things as we continue this uh, journey into the 21st century, technology seems to be somewhat off-putting for seniors. And you're here, you write a column about how to embrace that technology. What motivated you to do that? And what have been some of the topics you've covered? So I can tell you that my initial motivation came um, when I saw my own mother um, taking care of my grandfather, who um, was diagnosed with dementia over a decade now. Um, He passed several years ago. But um, just seeing that experience and the way that some forms of very simple technology um, could help kind of facilitate his life and make it a little bit more comfortable and a little bit easier. Um, that definitely um, kind of motivated me to get into this area of of study. And then um, during the uh, COVID lockdowns, my husband actually moved m- his own mother, um, also battling dementia, in with us. And I got to kind of experience that firsthand. Um, so I've seen how technology can can give people a little bit more comfort and a little bit more um, independence in yeah. their lives. And, and when you talk about the independence in their lives, I was reading an article which said that um, uh, it's also a good way to stay connected with caregivers who may be at distance. We live in a very mobile society. Kids may be in other towns. So that's always uh, that's a great way to also stay connected as well, correct? Absolutely. I mean, with all of the social media out there, and I know that a lot is said about, you know, the negativity of social media, um, but often for um, people who are aging and feeling alone, uh, social media is one of the only ways that they are able to stay connected with their loved ones who might be, you know, across the country. And um, companies like Facebook making the uh, device that, you know, actually lets you essentially see your loved ones in real time across the country or, you know, uh, Apple's FaceTime or Zoom, right, Mm -hmm. are are great ways to connect with those people that we love. And as those things become more and more intuitive and become easier for people to use, that's where we see seniors actually able to use them to connect. Mm -hmm. And also the literature suggests, and we're going to get into some of your topics that you've written on, but uh, written about rather, but a lot of the literature suggested that uh, uh, social media and tech te- technology in general helps seniors to have healthier minds and bodies. Because I guess yeah. it keeps, how, yeah, can you explain that or delve into that a little bit? For sure. So a lot of uh, seniors are in a place now where they can't actually 
because of physical limitations, they're not able to get out and do the things that they used to do. Um, so often social media is the only way that they're able to stay connected with with the world because, you know, they're not able to, you know, hike up to the to the mall or, or what have you to connect with their friends. Um, and so especially if they're aging in their own homes um, independently or aging in their, their families' homes, um, it's really important that they be able to use that social media to connect with others. Mm -hmm. And I think even in terms of the living space, I remember uh, back in the day, you know, visit your grandparents and you could, you knew you were near their house because you heard the TV about a block away, you know, <laughs> and you'd walk in, could you turn down the TV? What? Turn down the TV. I can't hear you. The TV's too loud. Well, that's what I'm saying. Turn down the TV. <laughs> it's funny. That's the experience we have whenever my husband calls his mother, who's now at an assisted living facility. Um, we can barely hear her because the TV is so loud. Um, <laughs> well, the good news is we now have Bluetooth headphones, which in one of your articles you talked about as a godsend for seniors watching TV. Absolutely. Um, often, we're still in a place where those things often require some help to set up, right? Bluetooth is not yet as intuitive as it should be. I think that Apple has made some strides in this with the AirPods and the way they just like auto connect to devices. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that uh, in the coming years, we will see other brands following suit um, because that intuitiveness makes it possible for everybody to use. When there's, you know, a five to eight minute setup process, um, your grandmother isn't as comfortable going through that process as, you know, your niece or nephew. Uh, well, and so we need to make these things more intuitive so that people of all ages um, can use them easily. I'm glad you said that because uh, uh, after what uh, X number of years working in law firms, you know, whenever there was a problem with my computer, I think it kind of ruined me in terms of technology because if it, if it didn't work, I call tech, right? And they would send somebody up and they would fix it. And now I'm tech, Vanessa, which is scary. But I've also found it seems to be more intuitive in terms of setting things up. But there's still, there's a learning curve. No matter how intuitive it is, you have to have the courage to dig into it. How do seniors do that, in your opinion? How should they be motivated to do that? Well, often they're not right and so what's going to have to happen and in what is happening is the technology is adapting to meet them where they are um i think a great example is the um the amazon echo right like um my mother-in-law is terrified of screens does not want a smartphone anywhere near her or a computer or even a tablet right an mm -hmm. ipad is very intuitive but doesn't want any of those screens but um she you know, is ready and able to have conversations with Alexa, um, learn what the news is. She's able to just ask it what the news is of the day, have it play her favorite songs, right? Because having a, a, a conversation is native to everyone, right? We don't right. have to have that set up. So it's something that she can easily do without needing help. And so it lets her maintain that independence and not feel like she has to rely on someone. And I think that we'll see probably more technology moving in that direction um, in the future. Well, I think in terms of maybe some basic steps for, uh, if, by the way, for our listeners, 
Hope you're having the pleasure as much as I am of interviewing Vanessa Hutchinson. She writes on technology for seniors and other topics as part of her as part of a relationship as a writer, if you will, with uh, today's transitions. And more of our articles can be read online at todaystransitions.com. Uh, Vanessa, in terms of introducing new new tech concepts, it seems like uh, if you're going to do that, you should build on existing knowledge, right? Comparing a new technology concept with something the senior already knows how to use. Is that what? So, how would you? What does that mean? And how would, should we do that in terms of introducing new technology? Absolutely. Um, so, I think that what that comes down to is having people nearby at least at the initial phases of you know the understanding of the new technology um it's far easier to have you know your caregiver set something up than having the senior set that up themselves um but you're right the it's far easier to build on if we already have an idea of what it should be like um alexa works for older people because it is having a conversation um the uh, many nursing homes still have the old school Wii's in them with the um, the joysticks because the body movement technology is far more intuitive to them than trying to you know use thumbs on a controller to play games, right? Oh. Um, so if they feel like things that the older people have done in the past then they're more likely to adopt them to their present. Whereas the things that feel new and foreign tend to be, you know, more intimidating mm-hmm. um, people and aren't going to be adopted as easily. And I guess that would also include watching technical language when explaining something to a senior, right? Like we might take for, a gra- for granted hearing something like an emoji or let's take a selfie, whereas the senior might be like, uh, what is that? So maybe use multiple words that can describe something instead of just saying, assuming that they know what an emoji or a selfie is, for example. Absolutely. I think that in, in simplifying technology, I think it works for everyone. I don't necessarily think that that's just for for seniors. I mean, I've been a teacher for the past 15 years and young people have to tell me what words mean all the time. So because words are always changing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that is actually probably something that is helpful for everyone um, is simplifying that language and understanding that people don't always have the same jargon in their brains that we do. That's a good point that that we're always adding new words that have different meanings, different connotations, no matter what your age is. But I also think the other thing I was reading, and maybe in one of your articles, was about you know watching your pace in terms of how you how you're introducing or how you're um, introducing a senior to te- technology. Um, like for example, with my little ones, uh, you, you get to TV, you get to ubiquitous uh, new remote control, and you got out. Actually, Roku was very simple, not to plug Roku, but they were very simple. I'll plug them right quick if someone needs a, 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 needs a Roku stick. But aside from that- I feel like point, I've already plugged like three different products. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I promise I don't like work for Amazon or Facebook or anything. These are just things I think that people are making that are really easy for people to use. I, right. That um, one too. There's a third one. That right. Plug, right. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. But whatever the whatever someone explains up to, they say, oh, Poppy, all you have to do is blah, 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 blah. And then they set it down, they leave. Right. I'm thinking, 
what what did you just do? So pacing would also be part of it, right? To maybe take a minute to explain, make sure the senior understands what you've done before you move on. So pacing is important in embracing new in technology. I would say not just pacing, but patience, which is not always my strength um, when teaching someone new technology. Um, but I've seen, you know, my husband has the patience of a saint and will walk someone through what they need in order to learn it multiple times if necessary. So it's not just about pacing and going slow enough for our loved ones to understand, but it's also about the patience um, to repeat things as necessary. Mm -hmm. But see, here's a kicker. This is going to be the psychological part of, I submit, of seniors embracing aging is that in seniors, we have a lot of experience. We have more knowledge, more, more knowledge, we're competent in what we know. It's been years since we were a novice. And now being a novice and trying to reinforce something new, there's a frustration that comes with that because now I'm outside of my competency. How do you get past that? and make someone feel comfortable as you're explaining new technology to them. So they don't feel yeah. like a novice. Absolutely. I actually think that part of that is uh, showing how the, these new technologies can build on those strengths, right? Acknowledging the strengths that they already have and showing how these new technologies might build on those strengths or enhance those strengths um, or help make their lives better or easier in some way. Um, I think it's always about just acknowledging acknowledging skills before deficits, right? Mm, that's uh, good. It's really it's really the same in in teaching young people, right? Like uh, we have to acknowledge people's strengths before we start working on their deficits. It's very important. For our listeners, Vanessa Hutchison writes an article uh, for today's transitions.com and uh she also has an art is keeping enjoy keep enjoying life with tech is that like your standing title or is that just for that one article for last fall it, it, it's there the title is always very similar but okay. it changes a little bit from from season to season um that time it was keep enjoying life i think that another one was finding comfort through technology yeah um yeah well, I like all of your terminology. I think that's a really good thing as we age is to keep enjoying life with technology or embracing life with technology. Either way, Vanessa Hutchinson writes on this topic, again, in Today's Transitions magazine, which can be found at todaystransitions.com. Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to hopefully you'll come back again to Aging with Grace 55+. plus. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. In this day and time for our listeners, um, you know, one of the most stressful things in our lives is uh, our aging parents, aging loved ones. And guys, we got to figure out something about caregiving, right? Because many of us, that is our role, is caregiving. And unpaid care provided by 610,000 caregivers right here in Kentucky, for example, is valued at $8.6 billion, according to new state data available from AARP's latest report in valuing the invaluable. But we don't want to just keep it right here in Kentucky because millions of Americans are taking care of a friend or family member with a serious health condition. And while it may be laudable to provide that care, be there for that loved one, being a caregiver, we can agree, can be a labor of love, but it can also be stressful. 
And if you're providing care, and if you're in that stressful zip place, we have someone this morning, which I thought would be really good to introduce you to, is uh, Confessions of a Reluctant Caregiver. Confessions of a Reluctant Caregiver. And there are three sisters who have this podcast series, and now I think it's just two of you guys now. Without further delay, we have J.J. Hill and Natalie Handy. Welcome to Aging with Grace 55 Plus. How are you guys this morning? We're great. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. Well, absolutely. I, I let me get this out of the way first, folks. When I when I first saw the sisterhood of the of, uh, of caregivers, the sisterhood uh, caregiving, I always, I thought these guys were sisters. I thought they were nuns, but apparently they don't even have it. Apparently they don't even habits you guys have is having fun. All the bad habits. <laughs> <laughs> All bad habits. She says. Oh, <laughs> So let's get let's get right into it. Um, you guys started off with caregiving when your mom um, she had early Parkinson's disease. So how did that work out for you? And what's what are some of the challenges you encountered? Well, mom, uh, her symptoms started at forty eight. She was formally diagnosed at fifty two. So four years to that diagnosis. Um, but our caregiving journey started uh, when she was fifty seven because. Caregiving is never planned, not not on a bucket list, right? Right. Uh, Nobody's signing up for it. I know. List of things to do. No. And uh, what happened was, and, you know, we say we laugh a lot on our podcast because um, it's laugh or cry. And we're Southerners. We're your neighbor. We uh, are based out of Tennessee. It's where we're from. So you got to laugh. That's right. And um, our dad passed away at 58 of a massive heart attack. Well, no. And um, so playing softball, doing what he loved on the 4th of July, who, you know, you don't plan for that. And right, we, right. we say we love you, Dad. That was very inconvenient because in the South, we never talk about money. Um, we uh, we never talked about the aging plan. And um, it was like, what do we do with mom? Mm-hmm. And um, she is just uh, 60. She will be. Yeah, she's just 69 and uh so since 2011 we've been managing that parkinson's and wow um it has progressed um since 2019 is when it really we say we took over full uh management of it but during that time um during those middle years we've been in and out of it uh just Mm. as she has progressed some of that time she's been living independently but Well, you know, the, the thing is, you know, we talk about your caring, taking care of your mom's providing care. I like it where you guys have created this, uh, which is on your website, uh, which is a judgment-free space where caregivers can be their most authentic selves, confessing the truths without shame or fear of rejection. How does that apply to providing care for your mom? But for patient, I want to care for our mom is is challenging providing care for anyone is challenging because you are ultimately becoming a part of their decision making process especially an adult and so in doing so the dynamics between parent child versus uh spouse husband wife versus parent the the, the opposite parent child the parents normally the one that gives direction it's like role reversal is very difficult and so while you know and it also is impacted by culture how you how you were raised and how your family interacts with one another 
And I think that's where it really is hard because yes, we managed our mom's diagnosis or supported her is really the right word because we didn't manage anything with our mom. Our mom, we get it honest from our mom. Our mom is very strong-willed and she is, she likes what she likes. And it was hard in the beginning because she did not like us butting into her decision-making process. True. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah, because this you talk about role reversal. Let's kind of ping off of that because now here's your mom, very dominant, very strong, and still very dominant, very strong, mm-hmm. but yet has early onset Parkinson's. So now we got this role reversal of the mm-hmm. sisters are now taking care of mom, who I gather you said is is not receptive to that. I can understand that. JJ, mm-hmm. agreed. Um, well, and we really saw that it, it really has. She lived independently for with my sister, my youngest sister, checking in for probably about seven years. Um, so she was in the small town. We had people from church checking in on her, spending the night with her. But really, that role reversal, that significant conflict, which we refer to as the dumpster fire, um, it was when we put her. We we had her. She had to go into assisted living. And then most recently, when she lived with my sister, Emily, we came out of assisted living after three, we're not able to handle her needs. And uh, we decided, okay, let's not go to skilled nursing yet. Um, So Emily said, I'll take her. I will take her 24-7. But, you know, when you get to the point where you say, Mom, you can't cook in the middle of the night. You can't make banana pudding. Let me tell you. Woo! That was that was bad. And so yeah. when you have to take like a two year old and she's not a child, but you have to take the knobs off of the stove so she won't cook at 2 a.m. making banana pudding. I mean, that's a hot mess. And then she's yeah. fussing. And what happens then, Natalie, when she's mad at Emily, she calls us and it becomes we have a text stream between the three of us. But it is we we ultimately referee. Um, Twain, we get on a phone call and we would listen to Emily and listen to mom. Oh, it would argue about why they should their points. And it almost, it reverts to a place that you don't expect. And I think it's also difficult because we're long distance. So you add in the dynamic of two individuals who are not able, uh, to live together because of role reversal where my mom doesn't want to give up. My younger sister is doing it for safety purposes. This is not a control issue. This is yeah. safety, right? Yeah. And our mom will acknowledge at the time, this is part of the disease problem, is she acknowledges at the time we get to a resolution, we all come to a place we can live with, and then two days later, it pops up again, and you're like, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Like, we yeah. just had this conversation. Yeah. Right. And I would have never seen ourselves... Yeah redirecting our mom because i can tell you you don't redirect our mom but this is where we're at yeah Yeah. navigating the caregiver waters is at times it's very rocky (laughs) and we hit a couple of rocks yeah our boat is sinking sometimes but take it on water (laughs) action love hold it put your hand over that one (laughs) (laughs) start bailing feverishly right put my hand over the hole And we're putting mom's life jacket on. We're like, yeah. mom, you're sinking. Yeah. <laughs> Out of fear. Cold. Well, we, we, we got you. We got you. Mom. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's got to be very stressful, especially for Emily, because the three of you yes. guys are, are on one accord. This is what we're going to do. Emily uh, carry, providing care to, caregiving from a distance. 
has got to be generating a lot of emotions, both yes. positive and negative, with with feelings of frustration and anger with everyone, right? So, so how do you how do you how do you uh, temper that? Because she's taking the brunt of what the three of you guys have agreed to. That's got to be wearing her down. Is she still part of your podcast crew, uh, which is uh, confessionsofareluctantcaregiver.com? So it's important to note that Emily and mom fired one another on multiple occasions. Mom would fire her. Mom fires her more. Mom fires her twice uh, a month. And then uh, Emily would call us and say, I'm done. I'm quitting. Uh, and um, this, um, what ultimately has occurred, uh, and it's something that uh, we talk about pretty extensively in our uh, podcast on April the 4th. Um, was that we decided after I did uh, respite uh, for about a week, Natalie and I did it, is that mom's disease had, de- disease had progressed significantly and um, it was time for us to move her to skilled nursing. One of the primary reasons was that uh, Emily was, we were just not able to care. And Emily has, uh, through the moment, she really has had to step out of the podcast because she's trying to find her new norm. Nat, I mean, wouldn't you say that's what we... Oh, 100%. And because mm-hmm. the, the emotional pull that it took, not only personally, but on their relationship, and that was not anticipated at all. I was concerned. I was the last person that should have ever cared for my mom. So I want to say not everyone is meant to be a caregiver, and you have to really understand your limitations and your how your past experiences could not be the best route. And so I think it's really important, like, and the sisters and I, we've talked about it. Um, we we know our roles and that's really important. We accept each other for what we can do mm-hmm. and Absolutely. we work together to make sure there's no blind spots. And Emily's yeah. so oh. just taken a step back and we love her like no other. Of course. For of course. us, yeah. we're very protective of her. And so for right now, it is important to us that she gets what she needs. And when she's ready, if she ever comes back, because for someone to want to walk away and not even participate, not to talk about it at all, tells you the level of, I don't want to say this, but it's true, the level of trauma that the experience had on her. And it did. It had on her physically and emotionally. It's not that our mom was this terrible, evil person. But you need to realize the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that can come from being a caregiver, especially if you're a direct caregiver who lives with the individual with a significant illness. For our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this interview with JJ and Nellie as much as I have. You can hear you can hear more of their, their conversations and thoughts on being reluctant caregivers by visiting their website, confessionsofareluctantcaregiver.com. They have three episodes up there now. When care starts in a crisis, riding the waves, caregiving, you're in charge to side these expectations. And when you visit their website, remember, it's a judgment-free space where caregivers can be their most authentic selves, confessing their truths without shame or fear of rejection. And JJ and Ali, I love your tagline. Come as you are and leave with a toolbox of resources to meet the needs of those who serve who you serve and yourself. And I love that as part of Sisterhood of Air. Carry on, guys. This has been absolutely delightful. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thank absolutely. you. Let's do this again. We'll visit again on, on this on another episode of Aging with Grace with 5 Plus. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. As another episode of Aging with Grace 55 Plus comes to a close, 
I'm going to share a list of famous people whom my 55 plus crowd know so well. You're about to hear the names of several famous people who once again prove the, the adage that overnight success is largely a myth. Because, you see, success takes toil. Success requires hard work, often coupled with rejection, which can be crushing to those of us who dare to try. Stories abound about inventors who quit trying and gave up too soon, or miners who struck gold just a few feet beyond where someone else had quit digging. To prove my point, consider the following failures, in quotation marks, failures, who epitomized something I once read that said, success isn't measured by the position you reach in life, it's measured by the obstacles you've overcome. Obstacles of rejection for the following people whom became quite famous. Like, for example, in 1927, Lucille Ball was told by an instructor at the John Murray Anderson Drama School, try another profession, any profession other than acting. Academy Award-winning filmmaker Woody Allen flunked motion picture production at New York University and at the City College of New York. Universal Pictures dismissed both Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds in 1959, releasing them from their contracts, claiming that Reynolds had no talent and that Clint Eastwood talked too slow. Malcolm Forbes, the late editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine, failed to make the staff of his school newspaper when he was an undergraduate at Princeton University. And here's, here's a really good one. Decca Recording Company executives responded negatively to the audition of four young musicians in London saying, quote, we don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on their way out, end of quotes. And this, this group of young men, the Beatles, took their sound elsewhere. And then the final point, for seven years, a young inventor named Chester Carlson took his idea to 20 corporations. All 20 turned him down. However, he persevered. He kept going until the Halloid Company, H-A-L-O-I-D, Halloid Company finally purchased the rights to his, his electrostatic paper copying process, and Halloid became Xerox. So once again, all these names, Lucille Ball, Clint Eastwood, The Beatles, uh, you know, Malcolm Forbes, and Halloyd, who later became purchased by the Xerox company, all of them proving what I opened with in closing this segment, which is that success isn't measured by the position you reach in life. Success is measured by the obstacles you overcome. Well, that's it for this edition of Aging with Grace 55 Plus. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to also visit my website, awg55.com, to enjoy current and past episodes. Or tune in wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and so many others. Many thanks for taking time to listen to this podcast, this episode, sponsored in part by... AARP Kentucky and today's Transitions Magazine. 
Many thanks also to DPL Financial, which is committed to strengthening financial plans with powerful products that deliver value for clients and advisors alike. For more information, visit DPLFP.com. Remember, aging is a lifelong process. If you choose to see new possibilities, you will find them. Aging is not a time of diminishment or being relegated to the sidelines of life, but application of lessons taught by some of our best teachers, including experience. By the way, if you have a story idea or or a comment that would appeal to our age group, 55+, plus, then visit my website, awg55.com, or you can email me. D-A-L-E, Dale, at awg55.com. And now, as always, here's my last thought of the day from James Clear, author of Atomic Atomic Habits. Clear writes, good habits make time your ally. Bad habits make time your enemy. So until next time, this has been your host, Dale Josie, of the podcast series Aging with Grace, 55+. plus. (laughs) 